Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And today we're talking about the jazz musician Billy Tipton. We have some content warnings before we start this episode. There'll be general periodical sexism and transphobia. We also have some explicit sexual content and mentions of parental abuse. We also have a couple of mentions of sexual abuse, just very briefly. We're also going to read quotes that misgender Billy Tipton. So let's talk about that a little bit. All right. <laughs> so Billy Tipton isn't so much known for being a jazz musician as he is known for having been assigned female at birth and living his entire life as a man. Mm-hmm. And most of the people in his life didn't find out that he'd been assigned female at birth until after he died. So obviously he was a woman. According to his biographer. Right. When you say according to his biographer, are you trying to tell us that there's like one main biography and it says he's a woman? Yes. Cool. Yay. Yay. Now, obviously, we're going to talk about what Billy Tipton's general deal was. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) To be informal about it. Um, And as we've done before... when we have to have that, like, debate someone's identity section, we'll mostly leave it to the end and we'll talk about it then. But, yeah, the basic situation is that a lot of the sources do basically assume that Billy Tipton was a woman who decided to live as a man and therefore they go back to saying, like, she and using phrases like girl and stuff to refer to him. Mm -hmm. Okay, guys, all right. I won't be doing that. Good. Uh, as you might have guessed. <laughs> but yeah, like, obviously, I just wanted to say at the top, we can debate it at the end, but I feel like it is safest uh, to err on the side of just using he, him pronouns and not saying things like he was really a woman. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Look, sounds like a good call with the yeah. limited knowledge we have. I don't think that's, like, a hugely controversial one for our audience. But yeah, so as you've correctly guessed, there is one main biography. It was written by a woman named Diane Middlebrook. Uh, it was published in 1998. Okay. She, yeah, kind of basically understands the whole, like, male identity as being this elaborate facade that she invented. Does she provide reasons why Billy Tipton might have done this? In the most bare minimum way possible, yes. Okay. Uh, And she doesn't really fall down on one side or the other in terms of using he pronouns or she pronouns. She instead developed this complicated system of using both alternatively where I'll read you her own words on like her reasoning for this. <laughs> okay. 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 So she has an author's note at the start about pronouns as every book that is on a potential trans person has. And it says Billy Tipton's success in passing as a man creates a problem for anyone writing about this person's life. Should Billy be called he or she? My account uses both pronouns. He and his are used to refer to Billy's professional persona and to the relationships he conducted with people who thought he was a man. Like everyone in his life then? Well, I'll finish the... Sorry. (laughs) Billy is she in early life and in professional life when the people around her know she is cross-dressing. I also use the female pronoun she and her when I attribute motives and skills to Billy as the producer of the illusion of masculinity, both on stage and off. Look... Which is just a 
enormously convoluted. Like, yeah. regardless of whether you agree with what she thinks is happening in this person's brain, it created this thing that I'd never really seen before in, like, semi to very offensive trans biographies where, <laughs> like, mid-sentence she'll switch pronouns and things like that when she's deciding that what she is talking about is no longer the illusion and is like the real woman underneath it uh that's that's so disorienting yeah it was quite disorienting and i just sort of wanted to note it like one of the reasons why a lot of biographers who write about trans people like the kind of excuse they use for using with a trans masculine person for example she pronouns in early life is they're like oh we can't be too confusing about this if we call someone who has not yet transitioned he the audience's minds will just explode and they won't be able to follow (laughs) what's happening and i just kind of love that tyann middlebrook was like let's switch (laughs) mid-sentence this is the best way (laughs) yes yes i mean a novel approach. Yeah, at least yes. she put some thought into it and came up with her own plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe not a good plan. But yes. Yeah, so, you know, we'll talk more about how we decide what pronouns to use with yeah. stuff at the end. I wanted to okay. touch on this at the start. But with what you just said, Alice, I think it does touch on something that we've mentioned before in talking about trans people, which is that, like, the state of the field of trans history is in a poor enough state that every time someone goes to talk about a topic like this, they do have to just kind of make up their own methodology. Yeah. And sometimes this happens. (laughs) I also think, and we've discussed this before, that people, yeah, would rather go to incredibly convoluted lengths to Mm -hmm. deal with somebody who is assigned female at birth, but not presenting female in their life rather than be like, oh, okay, he was a trans man. Yeah, no, like, that's true. We produce this situation rather than go, okay, maybe this was a man. Yeah, yeah, and we will return to that exact point, don't you worry. But we've been talking for a while now, so maybe we'll get, we'll into, get, into, right. get into some actual information about this person. <laughs> Billy Tipton was born in Oklahoma City on the 29th of December 1914. What state do you think Oklahoma City is in? So it's obviously not in Oklahoma, or you wouldn't have asked that question. Kansas. What? It's in Oklahoma. Why? Why did she betray us like this? Later on. Wait, no, I won't say that. Never mind. He's going to trick us again. (laughs) Is Kansas City coming up? I trust nothing. (laughs) Is it in Oklahoma? Oh, no, I knew this. It's like on the border. Let me. Anyway, go on. (laughs) Americans are going to be in hysterics. Yeah. (laughs) Why don't we make this podcast about American history often for people who are almost exclusively American. I don't know if you guys saw this, but we got an ask recently where someone was like, I really enjoy hearing non-Americans talk about American history. It's like great to have an outside take on it. Yeah, that I think is the best we can hope for, and I'm very grateful. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so Billy Tipton grew up during the Jazz Age, which is a very exciting time for music innovation in America. And the Tiptons are quite a musical family. Um, Both of the parents play the piano a bit. Uh, And in their home, they listen to a lot of music like ragtime, cakewalk, blues, so styles that are popular at the time and that have their origins in the music of black musicians. The Tiptons are white, to be clear. Okay. Just so we don't go halfway through this episode before clarifying that. And I just wanted to mention the type of music that they were consuming and that Billy's interested in because, you know, he does go on to become a jazz musician. Yeah. Because we've touched before in, for example, the Rosetta Tharp episode about the tensions between black and white Americans in the music and entertainment industries in the 20th century. And this is essentially the background to Billy's entire career. Like, he makes his living off of jazz. None of this is really engaged with in 
the sources or in like any statement we have of Billy's. But mm-hmm. I did just want to note that so we're aware of it at the start. And just while we're mentioning having Billy's own words, I might as well note at this point that we don't really have many primary sources like from his point of view like letters he wrote or diaries at all okay so you can tell this will be an easy and fun time in 1927 his parents divorced and he and his younger brother ended up living in kansas city where's kansas city i do know Uh, yeah i can't remember and it's definitely not kansas it's like just outside kansas is it colorado it's missouri it's missouri okay (laughs) that's dumb I'm sorry, residents of Kansas City. But that's dumb. So they go and live with their aunts. Kansas City has quite a famous jazz history. Uh, And at this time, it's full of little jazz clubs that play till the early hours of the morning. And there's live music in the streets and record stores all over the place. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Billy has a radio in his room where he can listen to jazz from all over the country. His aunts are also musical. Uh, They make them... Both him and his brother practice piano every day when they get home from school. And Billy studies, in addition to the piano, the saxophone and the violin. He plays in his school's orchestra there, but he is not allowed to play in the band because that is only for cisgender boys. Ah. Uh, yes. Okay. In 1933, he moves back to live with his mother. She's struggling financially now, and I think part of it is that he wants to help her out. And- oh, yeah strengthen his relationship with her he brings a saxophone with him and he's quite optimistic about finding work in a band so there's a lot of jobs for musicians around these days there's movie houses that will hire you to play in the intermission there's spots on the radio and the best jobs are in orchestras well imagine if there were a lot of jobs around for musicians amazing honky tonk had also come into its own and uh, prohibition had been at least kind of lifted in 1933. I won't get into that whole mess, which I researched and then promptly threw those notes in the bin. So you can sell beer in Oklahoma with a 3.3% alcohol content, which is not great, but better than zero. (laughs) 3.3 is just a weird choice of number, but okay. It's like half a beer. Mm. Like two thirds of a beer. It's going to drink a lot of beer, basically. Yeah. I read that the idea was that you couldn't really get intoxicated off of that, but I'm sure that residents of Oklahoma City did their level best. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> so he's playing occasionally in a bar, a honky-tonk bar called the Greenland. So the deal with honky-tonk mm-hmm. is it's a style of country music, but honky-tonk bars are known for being just like a bit rougher than your average mm-hmm. establishment. When you say honky-tonk, like the major thing I think of is like tinny out-of-tune pianos. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to take issue with that yeah we have a quote from a musician who knew him at the time when he was looking for steadier work than the green lantern saying she didn't last long because the males didn't like female musicians and management wouldn't hire her because they didn't want to go playing in a place like that so we can't find steady work this goes on for a while he's quite poor he has two teenage cousins called eileen and madeline and we have various quotes from them about how they remember Billy. And both of them were there on the day in 1935 that Billy decided that he was going to go to his next audition dressed as a man instead of as a woman. He had heard about a band that needed a saxophone player, but he knew that he wouldn't have any chance if he showed up to the audition presenting as a woman. Eileen remembers him saying, well, if I can't go as a woman, maybe they'll take me as a young man. And he binds his chest and he puts on boys' clothes and he goes off to the audition. This is pretty much where Middlebrook's analysis of his reasons starts and ends. Yeah. So she has the quite clear-cut narrative that he wanted to be a jazz musician. Women couldn't be jazz musicians successfully at this time. Billy Tipton faked being a man his entire life and became a jazz musician. 
I feel like that's kind of the thing where it's like you can attribute his motivations the first time he does it, mm-hmm. kind of, to wanting that particular opportunity. But I don't think you can tr- contribute, like, doing this for your entire life to that. Or doing this, like, in your personal life. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk more about it as it goes on. Yeah. I mean, like, I broadly agree with you, though. Yeah. <laughs> she very much represents this as a sort of spur-of-the-moment decision, but she also does seem to make it clear that he already had an outfit of men's clothes, which I thought was interesting. Is his brother around or his brother's, no, his brother's not around? No, his brother's not living with him. Um, he's living at that point with his aunt and his two female cousins. Okay, so if you wanted male clothing, he would have to have actively sorted out rather than just being like taking this outfit that's in the house kind of thing. Middlebrook has not told me anything that would suggest otherwise. Okay. I mean, so I'm not like saying anything in particular about like he's been doing this secretly for months or anything like that. Like I, I don't know any better than Middlebrook does where Mm -hmm. he got these to be clear but I just thought it was interesting that she didn't really take note of that and she seems to be kind of constructing her own narrative yeah yeah Um, and I think there's a bunch of things like that where she has kind of like missed opportunities to kind of like think a little more about his motivations Mm -hmm. and things like that Mm -hmm. um, which is a shame his family are absolutely appalled by this and they want him to stop. One of his aunts comes from Kansas City to specifically try and get him to stop. His father disowns him. Mm. Um, his mother is a little bit more accepting, if only because he starts bringing money in. Yeah, fair. Uh, he does move out from living with her and into a boarding house, but their relationship still seems pretty good. A few years later, she remarries and moves to a little town called Enid, and Billy is a regular presence in the house. and. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's nice. Fine. Yeah. But he sees little of the rest of the family. I also wanted to just quickly note at this point that Billy is exclusively romantically and sexually involved with women. He has a number of long-term relationships. I'm going to go into those kind of all in one go later on. We're going to talk about his career first. So he does get the job, the saxophone job that he tried. Oh, good. Yay. And from this point on for the next 23 years, he pretty much consistently plays with a variety of bands. So yeah, he is a musician now and sometimes times are tough and sometimes they're a little better, but for the next like 25-ish years, he is making a living as a musician. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes he tours around with a band and plays at different clubs in different states. Sometimes he'll have slots on the radio. Sometimes he'll be in a house band for a club, so he'll play there every night for mm-hmm. a certain amount of time. And he's quite good at it, as it turns out. He has already been a good musician, but he's a good entertainer in general. He mm-hmm. uh, is quite good at ad-libbing jokes in a way that he was sort of copying from other jazz musicians he knew at the time, and a style that ultimately originated with the call-and-response format of black church music. Okay. Uh-huh. So for about six years in Oklahoma City, he's living as a man and working as a man, but because he is from this city... And because he was trying to get into jazz before it was presenting as a man, there are always people around who know that he isn't a cisgender man. In 1941, he moves to Joplin, Missouri, and he starts living there as a man full-time in a community that does not know his history. Billy will live as a man for the rest of his life from this point on with virtually no one knowing his background. And as you touched on sort of at the beginning, that is quite a thing to do if this is just kind of a, like professional gambit. Especially when you consider that he was, like, disowned by his father and it caused a lot of conflict with, like, yeah, and his I mean, family. Yeah. And, I mean, Middlebrook herself does mention that this would have required immense vigilance and discipline. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that being discovered could have resulted in him being physically harmed. Yeah. Yeah, like, 
if that's his only motivation. It doesn't seem like a weird thing to do to turn up to an audition as, as a man, but it does seem like a weird thing to do to like live your entire life that way if your only motivation is professional. Mm. Once he gets to Joplin, Missouri, he plays with an eight-piece band fronted by George Meyer called George Meyer and his music so rare. Um, I'm not going to mention... Band names just weren't as good, (laughs) frankly. I think that the thing is more just that most band names aren't good in any given era. Yeah, maybe that's true true too. I mentioned this one solely because there was a joke that his music was so rare because it wasn't well done. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's good. And I wanted to tell you it. So an ongoing problem in Billy's career is that the places that he plays at generally wants just kind of like quite popular dance music and so forth and he's unable to challenge himself and develop as a jazz musician as much as he wants to mm-hmm. yeah. and that is a problem in this position but he is playing more sophisticated music uh, than he has been able to so far at least in a professional setting mm-hmm. and he is able to develop his skills and his act quite a bit in this role so is it the saxophone that he's playing all these bands or saxophone and piano? Or? Saxophone and piano. Okay. Um, not the jazz violin. Not the jazz violin. He was never that good at the violin. He would later say that he'd been a prodigy in childhood, but it wasn't true. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think he's That's like fine. quite endearing, honestly. <laughs> I think he's like fine at the violin, but he's pretty good at the saxophone. He's really good at the piano. Okay, Someone yeah. said like, oh yeah, you know, he was, he was pretty good on the sax, but he had the piano boiled and ready. <laughs> I liked. So he would, for example, play the piano standing up with his left hand and accompany himself with the sax. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm just even trying to like picture the logistics of that. Like a saxophone is a large and heavy instrument. The saxophone takes two hands to play. Yeah. That's like very impressive. Yeah. I don't know like how effectively it was. I don't know either. I mean, but even if you just pull it off as a kind of like gimmick, but it sounds musical, that's still very impressive. It is, it is. Yeah. So George Meyer and Billy Tipton develop an act together, which is pretty typical of what Billy's musical acts will be like going forth in his life, where it's a lot of dance music and then it's interspersed with what Billy called monkey business. So there'd be all kind of like skits and comedy and impersonations and things oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. In 1941, the USA entered the war. Mm-hmm. And undrafted men who are still in the United States are subject to constant scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You basically had to have a draft card on you at all times to prove that you weren't trying to get out of it. And he somehow managed to go to a doctor and get him to give him a 4F card. So basically saying, like, no, you're, you're very bad. We don't want you in the war. It's what Steve Rogers got when he was yeah. I like he said when he was small, because like traditionally that means when he was a child. <laughs> no, 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 when he was, when he was little. He was yeah. little. <laughs> as opposed yeah. to big or thick, as the kids say. <laughs> Presumably he just went to a doctor and he was like, I'm, if you sign this, I'm going to pay you. Like, I know my mum says when the like Vietnam War was happening and people were getting called up, her family doctor sort of said to her mother, look, I'll sign off on any of your children being unfit for this. So I think doctors may have just been yeah. ideologically fairly chill about this. That's yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. What a good doctor. Yeah. Good. The other reason why this is interesting is it's around this time that we first hear of him using uh, a story that he'll use for the rest of his life, which was that he'd been in a car accident and that his ribs had been injured and that he had to wear a lot of bandages around his chest for support because of that. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Like, a plausible story. Good excuse, yeah. So now that we've touched on World War II, would you like to talk about dogs? Yes. Yes. The two staples of our podcast. (laughs) True. So Billy has dogs. 
Good. And when they travel, he brings the dogs, and he'll only stay at places that he can keep the dogs in. How, like, normal is it at the time for, like, say, a boarding house to let you have dogs? Some hotels would let you have dogs, some wouldn't. Okay, As okay. today, I suppose. Okay. I do know that Billy would sometimes refer to them as the kids to get them into a motel. So he'd just be like, oh, it's for me, and I've got, like, the two kids in the car, and it's <laughs> like, all right, whatever. And then he'd be like, come on, guys. <laughs> Their band sometimes worked with a magician called Del O'Dell, who was a woman, uh, known as the Femme Magician. That's pretty bad. Yes, yeah. it is pretty bad. And I guess it gives you an idea of what it's like being a woman in this kind of entertainment, where like yeah. your womanhood is seen as something that is notable. Yeah. It's like a gimmick in it's your a act. Yeah. yeah. And in any case, she traveled with a menagerie. So she had rabbits and chickens and skunks and monkeys, and she would bring them into her hotel room and just turn them loose. <laughs> And they would trash the place because they're wild animals. And Billy liked how good the dogs looked by comparison. (laughs) He just always travelled with this woman so he could be like, look, look, this is fine. They'd be like, you have dogs in here. And be like, go to room 31. (laughs) So over time, he establishes himself as the drawing card for the bands that he's in. Several of the bands are named after him. So he's in the Billy Tipton Quartet and the Billy Tipton Trio. That is better than what's his name and the extremely rare music. <laughs> what's his name and the extremely rare music? I love how he took that bad name and made it worse. <laughs> Comedy. I'm sorry, George Meyer. <laughs> <laughs> George Meyer is dead, friend. So yeah, he's doing quite well for himself. Eventually a talent scout hears the Billy Tipton trio and they get an audition with Doshe Records Corporation in LA uh, in 1956 and they record their first album that year called Sweet Georgia Brown. They record a follow-up which is called Billy Tipton Plays Hi-Fi on Piano. Yeah, sounds legit. Okay. Does what it says on the tin. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And these recordings lead to some success for them. Billy makes like what would be a few grand today out of it. Okay. I mean, yeah. that's, like, nice as a musician, I guess. Yeah. But what they really get is more publicity. So they yeah. get better jobs with a bit better pay. And they get offered uh, the position of house band for a hotel in Nevada where famous musicians, uh, like, for example, Liberace, oh, really? okay. occasionally play. It's twice the salary they were getting. So this looks like an excellent opportunity. This is the break that they've been waiting for. And Billy turns it down. This is incomprehensible to his bandmates. As I've said, the money, yeah. the fame. Yeah. 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 There are a few reasons why Middlebrook speculates that he decided to turn this down. He had been offered work as a booking manager in Spokane, in Washington, playing clubs on the side a bit. So he did have that other opportunity. It didn't pay anyone as well, um, but potentially he wanted to kind of like stop touring around and things and have more... Steady Steady work. But the primary reason that Middlebrook understands is that he was worried about being exposed as they got more famous. Ah, yeah. He'd had a few run-ins with people that he'd known back when he was presenting as a woman. She also says that perhaps, you know, as they got into the more sophisticated musical circles that people wouldn't be as easily fooled. So a wife of one of the musicians who traveled with them said, well, I'm from California and you recognize these things. In California, it would have been obvious that Billy was a woman. Okay. Okay. And I guess even if you don't think that that holds any water, the more famous they are, the more people there are looking at them. Yeah. Yeah. And the more chances that someone's going to notice something. Yeah. 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 It does sort of raise the question of like what Middlebrook thought Billy's long-term plan was though. You know, like if he's getting into this in order to be a musician and then ultimately it means that he can't be fully successful as a musician. Yeah. 
And yeah. like, you know, he, he started presenting as a man and living as a man when he was quite young. And obviously when you're out of work and you're quite young, you're not necessarily thinking, but what about if I get super famous in 20 years? Yeah. yeah. But again, it's just one of those things where I think at that point you need to readdress yeah. your understanding of his entire life. And just kind of like think about that for a minute. And yeah, like it wasn't really present in the biography, and I was yeah at that point where he's becoming super famous. If he wanted to reveal his identity, as it were, that could be a decent publicity move, surely. So I think that what would have happened then, and this is speculation based on no research. Yeah, fair enough. Is that yeah, this would have been a massive publicity thing, and then people would have come and seen him play. And then he would have fizzled out and been yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah. But also, you know, like, potentially he didn't want people coming and being like, Femme so musician. you're the female jazz musician who pretended to be a man. Yeah. And, you know, possibly that's because he understood himself to be a man. And potentially that's just because that sounds like a very unpleasant thing to go through. So he takes this job as a booking manager playing clubs on the side. And the music is playing on the side is very much... A step down in terms of how challenging it is and in how much he is the draw card for this club. So he's essentially mm. just kind of playing like backing music. Oh, yeah. And this essentially freezes his music career permanently. By 1965, the band only really plays occasionally and his career is over. Okay. As a, as a okay. playing musician, he works yeah. as a booking manager for longer. So that was about what I wanted to say about his career as a jazz musician. And I wanted to go back to when he was still living in Oklahoma City and to talk about all of the women that he stayed at this whole time. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. So in Oklahoma City, he had uh, roomed in a boarding house with a woman named Non-Earl Harrell. So just to back up, Oklahoma City, this is when he had moved out from living with his mother and now. Yes. Yep. So when he moves into this boarding house, uh, this is when he's just started presenting as a man Mm -hmm. and so he moves into this boarding house there are people who understand him to be a man and there are people around who are like oh no i know billy he is really a girl yeah and he starts rooming with a woman named non-earl harrell Mm -hmm. what is that name um (laughs) so the first name is two words non n-o-n and then earl as in like an earl so she is not an earl she, I can confirm she is not an Earl. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now, non-Earl had been in the entertainment scene for a while. She had done marathon dancing and walkathons. Oh, marathon um, dancing. I read about that recently. Yeah. It's the weirdest thing. Yeah, it's... Yeah, so what that is is literally like a couple enter a dance and they begin to dance and then they continue to dance until like... Everyone dies. Yeah, like the last couple standing wins the marathon dance but it goes for like days well weeks oh my god she would do it for weeks that's crazy and she attained quite a level of local celebrity because of it <laughs> you would yeah if I knew anyone who danced for weeks straight I would be impressed yeah so people basically what would happen is that one would like essentially sleep on their feet and the other one would hold them up and they would awkwardly sway like teens at their first disco uh, and then would go on for weeks did someone like come up and feed them? Yeah, yes, yeah, they, yeah. they ate in these weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like fairly horrific, frankly. Yeah. But yeah, so she did that. She got money out of it. Um, Good on you, Nan. And she was generally involved in the entertainment scene in Oklahoma City. So we don't know a lot about their relationship firsthand from either of the two of them. Billy's brother would say that non Earl was her first girl, but I don't think it was an out and out marriage situation. I would say they were more like roommates. Um, however <laughs> <They were> roommates. <laughs> this seems 
<laughs> incorrect. There seems to be little doubt that they were just a couple. Uh-huh. Um, I mean... When you have to say, I don't think it was an out-and-out marriage situation, you're definitely saying, oh, there's something going on here. It just wasn't, like, exclusive and monogamous. Or I, I, That's how I read that. Potentially. I don't think that Billy's brother would have been saying, like, oh, right. they just had a casual polyamorous time or anything like that. All right. Like, so Billy's brother is more saying that your options are, like, marriage and single. Is that what we were saying? I, I, yeah, I think maybe what's happening is that he is viewing Billy, who he understands as a woman, and this woman as kind of having something going on, but doesn't fully understand it to be a real relationship. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Billy's brother is like quite conservative and doesn't really approve of Billy all that much. All right, so yeah. Okay. That's just the general mindset that this mm. is coming from. <laughs> but yeah, so it seems pretty obvious that there were a couple of musicians who knew them when asked would say things like, well, I would think so. <laughs> and, oh, everyone knew that. They just didn't discuss it. And these comments are coming from people who understood that Billy was a woman who cross-dressed and that mm. he and Nono were in a lesbian relationship. Okay, yeah. Hence the, like, we just didn't discuss it sort of thing. Yeah. Nono certainly knew that Billy had been assigned female at birth, but, yeah, we don't really know what they understood their relationship to be and what Nono considered her attraction to be in terms of like who she was interested or anything like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. She only otherwise had relationships with men that we know about for what okay. it's worth. So this is his first relationship and when Billy moves to Joplin, Missouri, Non Earl goes with him and they represent themselves as husband and wife there. All of his partners do represent themselves as Mrs. Tipton on, like, ID and things like that. But he never legally marries any of them mm-hmm. for the obvious for, yeah. reason of not having legal documentation that yeah. has his yeah. name on it. <laughs> the relationship between Non-Earl and Billy eventually falls apart and she moves back to Oklahoma City in 1943. The same year, Billy gets his second wife, whose name was June. That's, we don't know her surname. We don't know a lot about her. Mm-hmm. Together, they got a red Pekingese called Troubles. Oh, very good. Is this the first dog? This is the first dog. Pekingese are like little ones, aren't they? Yeah. I love the name Troubles. Yeah, same. Troubles is good. Yes. June also had a monkey. One time. (laughs) Of course she did. (laughs) What self-respecting woman doesn't have a monkey, frankly? (laughs) One time, Billy played a gig and June would like sit in the club and watch the gig and kind of hang out. And they left the monkey in the car. No. Oh, no. (laughs) Bad. And when they got back, uh, it looked like there had been a snowstorm in the car because the monkey had torn out all of the upholstery. <laughs> that was exactly how I pictured that going, yeah. To be honest, I pictured the monkey stealing the car while they were in the car. <laughs> <laughs> just like sitting on like three phone books. Yeah. 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 So yeah, mostly I just wanted to tell you pet facts again. They are together until 1946, uh, and then they broke up. Billy gets custody of Troubles. I assume June gets custody of the monkey. Well, the monkey was originally June's. Yeah, so yeah, that seems fair. Uh, we're not really sure what June knew about Billy. She would make comments after they broke up that he was a hermaphrodite, quote-unquote. So possibly they discussed something, and then she was mean about it yeah yeah. Uh, possibly she suspected something and was just again taking a jab at him after they'd broken up yeah we don't know but if he did tell June he never again told any of his partners by the time he broke up with June he had already met Betty Cox which is Mrs. Tipton number three when June left he starts inviting Betty to visit him in troubles (laughs) (laughs) He never took her to meet his family, and she described herself as not, at the time, being worldly enough to really question this. But he gets along quite well with her family, especially with her mother, 
And this continues after they eventually break up and he sends her mother cards and presents and so forth well into the 1960s. That's quite nice. Hmm. Middlebrook, interestingly, understands him as satisfying the need for a mother-son relationship through this relationship. But he has a mother. Yeah, he has a mother and they're in quite a good relationship. So the emphasis seems to be on the son part. Ah, yeah, that. Which again, I think is a time at which you need to kind of pause and sort of think about what you understand to be happening here. Yeah. If this is just a professional facade, you know, why do you have that? personal investment in yeah being recognized as a as a son and being that to a mother Um, yeah like surely at that point you're speaking to identity yeah 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 Um, and i mean i think that's really just speculation on her point that that was even like what he needed out of that like yeah maybe maybe. he just liked this woman like they, they got along yeah for christmas one year billy got betty a little black puppy called boots lou Called what? Boots Lou. <laughs> Troubles did not like boots. <laughs> oh. June showed up one time uh, claiming that she had a visiting rights for Troubles and stayed four days as an unwanted guest. <laughs> I've just of... retained all the dog stories, I'm sorry. <laughs> what no, it's good. kind of dog was boots? I don't know. I just know that it was little and black. Okay. I wonder if Troubles was happy to see June. <laughs> I imagine that Troubles was like a monster. <laughs> it was just like mean as hell, but loved June and Billy, I guess. Billy and Betty are together for seven years and then they break up in 1954. Um, so at this time, Betty is kind of like traveling around a lot with the band and mm-hmm. she has sort of found that that was really tiring. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. The alternative that she has is basically just being alone a lot while her husband's gone for months at a time and this is just a bit much for her. So yeah. they break up. And after Billy uh, and Betty broke up, he quickly gets into another relationship with a woman called Marianne. So we're in 1954 now. Mm-hmm. And she lived in one of the towns that they passed through regularly and they flirted and he bought her fuzzy navels, which uh, is – in this book it said it was um, – orange juice and peach schnapps oh yeah okay yeah uh, and i just wanted to mention that because when i've made it before i've also put in vodka and i was like did i make this up at some point and i feel ashamed of so <laughs> i think it's because we started with screwdrivers and we were like but what if a peach flavored screwdriver yeah, rather than starting true. with orange juice and being like but what if peach alcohol yeah that's, yeah. that's we did do that yeah that's true <laughs> marianne also liked dogs do they get more dogs? They do. They get three Pomeranians. Okay, hang on, hang on. Where did Boots go? Did Boots go with Betty? So by this point, because we are covering quite an amount of time. Ah, okay. Boots went with Betty. Yep. And Troubles has passed away. Oh, no. Off to make havoc in the sky. R.I.P. Troubles. Yes. R.I. Havoc. We will remember you. Yeah. R.I. Havoc. <laughs> I just read this. <laughs> but yes, they get three Pomeranians. Their names are Timmy, Tinker, and Tippy. <laughs> I love that they're going for like the dumb small dog breeds. Yeah, me too. Yeah. It's good. And it's with Marianne that he moves to Spokane in when he decides to kind of like give up that big break. I guess we can see why he might have done that then, given that like he's broken up with Betty because she finds like the touring and the music career hard. I can mm. see why he might want to settle down with someone and be yeah. like, no, I'm going to take something more stable. Yeah, like buy three dogs and settle down in one town with your partner. Yeah. Yeah. 
I like the way you say that, like that's the American dream. That is- Buy three dogs, settle down. We've mentioned five dogs and there's also going to be five wives. And I don't know. Yeah. Dogs. Anyway. Wait, does- so we're on wife number four right that was- now. Marianne was wife number four. Okay. And he does eventually leave her for a woman named Kitty. Kitty was a burlesque dancer and a stripper. Where he works playing music, yeah. there are also burlesque dancers and strippers mm-hmm. there. And the musicians will often walk them to their cars and make sure they're safe because the oh, patrons yeah. were garbage, basically. Yeah. And would treat them badly and, like... So they see each other at work and they begin to flirt. He sends her a series of, like, sexy letters. <laughs> uh, so one reads, My typewriter has a contract in it, and so I'm doing this by hand. I've been doing it by hand for some time now. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's so good. I liked it too. Uh, and you know, he bought a gifts and things like that. The most hilarious of these, and I cannot overstate how hilarious this is, is in 1961 he commissions an oil painting of her, nude, lying on a beach with a volcano erupting in the background. <laughs> this has to have been like an in joke. <laughs> Like, surely they discussed this. I, I hope so. I'm just getting that gift if you hadn't discussed this. <laughs> I just, like, Middlebrook just mentioned this, and I was like, come back. <laughs> so is this painting still in existence? So I know that Kitty still had it at the time when Middlebrook spoke to her through mm, this book. Okay. I don't know if Kitty's still alive today, uh, but I imagine that it's probably something that she has kept private and doesn't want a copy of going on the internet. That's fair Given enough. that she's naked in it. I didn't yeah. consider that Kitty may still be alive, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> like, until the volcano, I was like, okay. And then I was like... Yeah, it was like, oil painting, what? okay. Nude oil painting, yeah. Nude on the beach, beach. yeah. Mm. Volcano. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, so apparently this is this works because they get married on St. Patrick's Day of 1962. This is the only time he has an actual wedding. Okay. So their wedding is never registered. The justice of the piece's signature is forged. <laughs> Kitty says that she just left all that to Bill. She didn't know it wasn't legal. Uh, and so uh-huh. he seems to have just, like, bluffed his way through it and then never made it legal by registering the papers. All right. I think that there were probably, like, Middlebrook thinks that there were at least a few people who were in on it. I think they'd have to be. Yeah. I don't know. Like, obviously, we don't know what they knew. Yeah. Yeah. He could have spun some story about, like, I'm already married. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or something. But, yeah, they'd passed away by the time Middlebrook was looking for people to speak to. So, we don't know. Mm -hmm. Especially because he has had four previous wives. Like, it would be pretty easy to be like, oh, yeah, I never got a good divorce from... Betty or Marianne or June. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So that's all his wives. And all his dogs? No. Oh, really? Not all his dogs. I forgot one dog. More dogs than wives. Okay. Which I suppose is typical of human beings. I mean, yeah. On average, I guess. I don't know. I retract that statement. (laughs) I don't have all dog and wife data in front of me. (laughs) Yeah, so there's the obvious question to raise of what the last three knew. All note similar things about him, that he would never undress fully in front of them, that he was mm-hmm. in the bathroom door, uh, that story that he'd been in an accident and therefore had to wear supportive bindings around his chest. A few of them noted that he shaved every morning, um, mm-hmm. which I thought was, like, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, presumably, yeah, he, I guess, went through a sort of charade of shaving. So, yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing about it is that, like, um... 
he either was doing this to keep up appearances with his wives mm. or he was doing this because he found it to be like personally yeah. fulfilling. Oh yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Like it is a thing now with trans men today where sometimes before they go on hormones, if they choose to do that, that they'll shave even though there isn't an enormous need to, because they're like, it makes you know, them feel, this yeah, feels good and right. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that could have been a thing. Betty and Marianne were quite open about their sex lives with Billy uh, talking to Diane Middlebrook. Which is good of them, frankly. Yeah. That's a pretty intense conversation to have with some random biographer who showed up at your house. Basically, Betty and Marianne maintained that they had never noticed, even though they had had an active sex life with him, Mm -hmm. uh, noting that he would never fully undress and that he seems to have obtained a dildo and then used that. Okay, yeah. So Betty would say, Billy always wore a rubber he would strip off and toss away after we made love. So that's what he felt like, a man wearing a rubber. Which means that I guess Middlebrook was like, so what did he feel like when you were having sex? <laughs> Which again, it's just such an intense conversation to have with someone. Marianne said, he was, well, how shall I put it? The first time we danced, I noticed he seemed to have a permanent heart on. I just thought, lucky me. <laughs> And Middlebrook asked her, well, how could you possibly have not noticed during sex? And she said, because he had a prosthesis, I guess. He never explained that he had one, and I never knew. Kitty, on the other hand, was uh, vehement that she had never slept with him at all. Didn't they get married? They did get married. Okay. You don't have to have sex in a marriage, Alice. No, I'm just surprised that they didn't. Given that his other wives did. Yes. Well, uh, she also didn't believe that the other women had had sex with him. And she said, I absolutely don't believe there is any way in hell that he could have lived with a woman for any length of time without her knowing. Oh, okay. I mean, she does claim to be clear that she didn't know. Okay. Okay. How long was he with Kitty for? So they get married in 62. They are eventually going to get divorced. Mm -hmm. uh, And they get divorced in 82. Okay. Okay. They have been living separately for a a period of time before they get divorced, but Mm. still like a good long while, longer than uh, his other relationships. So if she says like a woman couldn't live with him for a long time without knowing. You think she's accidentally revealing. Like she she lived with him for a long time. Yeah. So she had been sexually abused in the past. Uh And Brooke believes that this probably would have colored her feelings about having a sexual relationship. Uh, And also not that long after they got married, she had a fall in which she damaged her back and she took quite a while to recuperate and they did sleep in separate beds Okay, yeah. Uh, from that point if they hadn't before. Diane Middlebrook is quite skeptical that they didn't have sex though. Billy wrote her a lot of sexy letters when she was out of town, basically like alluding to their sex life. I was going to say before that like the kinds of gifts he's giving her sort of Im- certainly imply that there's a sexual element to their relationship. Like, Wait, when you say the kind of gifts... Like the nude oil painting situation, oh, that right, letter that he sent where he was like, I've been using my hands. I mean, if they're not having sex, then that, that becomes quite uncomfortable. Yeah. 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 So on one of the letters that he writes her when she's out of town, so she travels a bit for work, there's a cartoon figure drawn covering his genitals with the caption, I think of you so much it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> like what you send to your partner you're not sleeping with i feel like that would be there's also this weird. sort of ongoing personification of their genitals is percy and hortense <laughs> uh, so there are a ton of examples of this i wonder how they chose those percy names. And hortense. i don't know but so one example reads percy mrs hortense will you please bring her home he hasn't had a good talking to since last friday my back seems to be better today maybe by the time she does get home percy should be able to really give her a going over <laughs> I'll give you a moment. So, I have several questions here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Kitty's genitals are the ones with the masculine name. Is Hortense a masculine name? No, Percy is. No, no, no. Percy is, no, Percy no. is Bill. Percy is... But- 
I thought it was Kitty that hurt her back. Oh, no. So, like, um, she does, but also, like, this is just one letter out of, like, years of marriage. Oh, okay. Like, her back recovers and then Bill briefly strains his back or whatever. Oh, right, uh, right, to be right, clear. Yeah. yeah, so it absolutely was clear from context reading this, I promise, that... Billy's genitals are Percy. Billy's genitals are Percy, yes. And Kitty's yes. Hortense. I yes. need to know uh-huh. how they chose the names Percy and Hortense and whether those names... Like, obviously, naming your genitals is inherently comical to some degree. <laughs> but whether those names are as funny to us now as they would have been at the time. Like, Percy is a pretty inherently comical name. I think Percy... I don't I don't know. I Look, I don't know. I, I This has to have been to some degree tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Like, yeah. it just has to have been. Yeah. Like, you don't, like, personify your genitals and give them, like, feelings without it being funny. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly doesn't sound like they weren't having sex. No, it really yeah. doesn't. That like, then further raises the question of if the situation was that they did have sex and then she thought that if she was publicly acknowledging the fact that they'd have sex that people would have like viewed her with suspicion regarding like what she knew Mm -hmm. uh, or so forth or potentially she did know or she had some idea and she just decided it wasn't a problem yeah and again she just didn't want the public to know that yeah like my feeling on that is just that she you know she doesn't want to talk about her sex life with a random biographer honestly so she's like oh no i never had sex i wasn't into it and i had a Mm. back problem yeah. yeah, yeah, and then it sounds like they were having sex, and possibly she knew about it, like potentially. Yeah, I don't know. Given that she's like, no, nah, you couldn't live with him without knowing. Oh no, I didn't know. Yes, like <laughs> it's not all adding up, really. Yeah. 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 In any case, Billy wants children, and so they talk about adopting children, and they do eventually adopt three. Oh, all privately, so like privately organized with people they know who have or are about to have a baby and do not want that. Yeah. Yeah. The first is born on the 19th of October, 1963. So Billy gets home from work one day and Kitty is there and she has the baby. He's so ecstatic that he sits down. It doesn't even take off his raincoat. He just sits down and rocks and rocks his baby for ages. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. And they name the baby John Thomas. It's a good name. He gets into Better this Better than room. Percy and Hortense. They get into this routine where when he comes home from playing gigs, which he's still doing at this point, at 2.30am in the morning, he'll, like, feed the baby its bottle for the night. And That's, like, nice. quite a good arrangement, honestly. Yeah, it is. It's quite yeah, because then she can sleep. It's good. Yeah. yeah. And he's just generally quite devoted to the baby. Two years later, in 1965, Billy heard about a child who was the child of an acquaintance, but it was in foster care and it wasn't really being treated all that well. The child is six weeks older than their son yeah and they end up adopting him and they name him scott lee he arrived and he was like unfed and he was filthy and they take care of him and it takes him several months but he becomes comfortable and healthy in his new home and then ends up being like a very gregarious happy child and then they adopt their last child in 1969 the mother had heard that they adopted two others and she contacted them and they named him william allen nicknaming him little billy oh that's good so now he has three kids. That's very good. Yes. In 1971, his mother passes away. Now, Billy's aunt, Cora, had never accepted that Billy lived as a man. She thought it was inappropriate and thought that Billy needed to cut this out, basically, and they'd never resolved this. Mm-hmm. So she calls when Billy's mother passes away and asks for Billy by his birth name. Oh. A short conversation ensued. Billy's cousin Eileen said that whoever answered the phone responded that, well, he's resting, he can't be disturbed, without clarifying who was being talked about. Um, And then they had a conversation in which the aunt consistently called Billy by his birth name, and eventually Billy was fetched the phone. 
the person who picked up the phone referred to herself as Billy's mother and Kitty's mother was close with them and lived with them for a while. Kitty says she never heard about this phone call. So it seems like Kitty's mother was aware. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. So that whole thing again. The person that picked up the phone referred to themselves as... Billy's mother. Okay. So the aunt rings up and says, you know, so-and-so's mother has died. Get her on the phone. Mm -hmm. And um, the woman who picks up goes, well, look... No, he's resting right now. And Aunt Cora goes like, no. Get him on the phone. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, who are you to tell me that I can't, like, speak to my relative? And the person who picked up the phone is like, well, I'm Billy's mother. Okay. Um, so it seems like the most likely candidate is his mother-in-law. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so it would appear that she was either already aware or she figured it out on the fly very quickly and was very smooth about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But yeah, so he goes uh, to go to his mother's funeral. The surviving family generally still holds the view that it isn't right for Billy to be living as a man. But what this trip does mean is that he's able to revive his relationship with his cousins, Eileen and Madeline. And he's able to just sort of like hear about family news through them that he hasn't heard that much about for a while. And he's able to share concerns that he might have emphysema. So Billy is getting older. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get sicker as you get older. And he just never seeks medical care for any issue. Yeah. Because going to a doctor would mean that it was revealed that he'd been assigned female at birth. So he's experiencing increasing shortness of breath. And, I mean, I would imagine that this isn't something that he can really share his concerns about fully with the people in his life. Because yeah. they'd be like, go to a doctor. And he'd have to explain why he wouldn't. Yeah. Especially because the people in life think he has some kind of, like, rib injury. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they were also able to just sort of like talk about a bunch of stuff that Billy wouldn't have talked to people about much, mm. probably. So they remember having this like quite, you know, lighthearted conversation when they asked like, oh, how do you get away with using the men's restroom? And like, how do you do this and all this? Um, and they asked about Kitty. Uh, and he says, Kitty knows all about me, but there's no hanky panky. I have a room upstairs with a boy. She has her own room downstairs. Okay. Which would seem to support Kitty's claim that they'd never had sex. However, I think what's happening here is that he is essentially presenting a kind of like half truth in order to remain acceptable to these few relatives. Yeah. So for example, he admits the fact that he'd had other relationships with women and certainly that there'd ever been anything sexual with those women. And after Billy passes away, this all comes out and they're really, really upset to find this out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Eileen says, I'm just a provincial farm woman. I can't even conceive of it. Which is like... <laughs> That's kind of like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, it's almost sort of a character trait. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm just a simple provincial farm woman. I don't know anything about this. Yeah. Um, Especially when they're having this whole chat with him. Like, all right, so how do you go to the men's bathroom? Like, how do you get away with it? How's your housing arrangement? And then when it comes out, she's like, oh, no, no, no. Never had anything like I that. Can't I can't even imagine it. But I guess he was presenting a version of the truth that was palatable. Yeah. But the fact that anyway, he says Kitty knows all about me. So let me tell you what Madeline said as well. So she said, we thought she gave up everything in a normal woman's life for her music. Basically understood that Billy had just like never had romantic or sexual interaction Mm -hmm. with anyone. And this had been a sacrifice made in order to be a jazz musician. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that basically like the story that Billy needs to present to these women is that he doesn't want to be in a real marriage with a woman. It's just yeah. a necessary part of his persona 
Kitty knows and is fine with it, and it's not actually a marriage. Uh, Having said that, I suppose we do need to consider that maybe Eileen and Madeline are also presenting a different version of the truth for the public. But yeah, so I think that, like, Diane Middlebrook kind of takes this as, like, confirmation of what she understood, which is that, like, oh, yeah, Billy Tipton was just a woman who had to fake being a man to be a jazz musician. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I think that we just need to be a lot more suspicious of everything that everyone says. (laughs) But, yeah, like, overall it seemed like they had a pretty – good conversation and I imagine that it was probably quite cathartic for him to be able to reconnect with some family and to talk about things that he's not been able to talk to anyone about potentially in decades yeah yeah yeah, even if they're not fully understanding him either Billy's family with Kitty eventually falls apart Kitty says uh it's because Billy was gutless so as the children grew into teenagers they became sort of increasingly rebellious and he would take their side and he wasn't really able to discipline them at all and she was forced to take up that role and she wasn't really emotionally equipped to deal with that she just kind of didn't know how to do that effectively and she dealt with it by screaming at them constantly to the point that the kid who lived next door didn't want to be at home in the afternoon by themselves because they could hear the lady next door yelling and it frightened them okay yeah oh no so once while they were having this screaming fight one of them came at her as it was described so potentially going to hit her or something Mm. like that that was scott and she threw him down the stairs and then pushed john over and billy essentially just didn't intervene but he did take his two older sons from the house that night they slept in a motel and the next day they bought a mobile home and his third son came to live with them soon after and it's not long after this that kitty and billy eventually divorce although it's not an official divorce because there wasn't an official marriage yeah she um said that she'd just been given papers she'd let him take care of it she didn't have the papers anymore oh yeah yeah, okay yeah so once again he probably just fudged the paperwork yeah or she's been in on it the whole time and she's lying like yeah that's true that's true he's also by this point really struggling for work so he's not playing music anymore Mm -hmm. and he's just working at the booking agency and it's slowly going out of business by mid-1994 he's quite deep into debt a lot of the money that he's meant to be making comes from booking musicians and then taking a commission from what they get paid yeah Mm -hmm. and he just doesn't have the heart to chase these commissions up so people just don't pay him yeah okay. yeah okay yeah his sons are teenagers as i said and they also keep just like taking money off him he's also entitled to social security money but he doesn't want to risk claiming it so yeah. he just lives in poverty mm-hmm. in 1985 scott and john move out they're 22 at the time his youngest son continues to live with him this is little billy and they settle into a quite nice time of life for a year or so things haven't been that stable for little billy for a few years and he quite likes this routine and the opportunity to like just really get to know his father as another human being and they have like jam sessions together billy's been teaching them the piano at this point billy's got quite bad arthritis uh so Mm. he only will really play in these jam sessions he's still quite a talented musician apparently but it hurts and he's not at his best anymore so he doesn't like to play they get a dog one christmas another one sam it's a labrador so the reign of the tiny dogs is over (laughs) also the reign of the like silly dog names over. In 1986, however, the situation falls apart as well. Little Billy starts to do drugs mm-hmm. and uh, they drift apart a bit and he moves out very abruptly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. 
So he's sick. He's sick, as I've said. He's quite short of breath all the time and his health is continuously getting worse. His co-workers and his friends try to get him to see a doctor repeatedly, but he refuses to. Middlebrook uh, believes that he understands that he's going to die soon because any of the chest bindings that he's been wearing for his entire life and um, anything that he's been using to, like, either as a dildo or just as a general packer aren't ever found in his possessions. Mm-hmm. So she thinks that he, like, purges this of his belongings when he knows that his stuff is about to be gone through, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now that we're quite late in his life, we have the only statement surrounding his identity that has survived. So he said it to one of his cousins, and she recounts it to Middlebrook, and she said she was determined to be happy that was the night she told me some people might think i'm a freak or hermaphrodite i'm not i'm a normal person this has been my choice and he made uh, his cousin promise that after i die you have my body cremated so i'll just disappear yeah okay so i think middlebrook kind of takes this as confirmation that he identified as a woman and all of this had just been stuff he had to do he didn't want it to be viewed as impacting his identity. I feel like you could really <laughs> interpret it in exactly the opposite way. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And it's it's really sad that this is all we've got. Like, I just want to have a conversation with this person so bad. But yeah, like, as you said, I don't know if we really need to add anything to that. You could read it the exact opposite way, that he just was a man and just... I feel like if what Middlebrook is saying is that Billy Tipton is a woman and doesn't want this whole like living as a man situation to impact his memory. Yeah. Then why the cremation? Like, Mm. I feel like the cremation really kind of says he's obliterating traces of that. Yeah. Especially because like he has cousins alive Mm. who know that he was assigned female at birth. Like, It's also worth noting that as he's getting older and as his children have moved out, Eileen and Madeline have said, come and live with us stop this now you know your career's over come and live with us as a woman and he kind of says no i'm, I'm going to but he doesn't yeah. Um, yeah and he sort of says well you know not yet i've got the booking agency and then like not yet my son's still living with me but by the time he passes away none of that's true yeah and he's still living there and he still hasn't begun to live as a woman yeah 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 and you know i think that if he was a woman and he started this as a career thing. It, it, you know, it would be hard, yeah. whatever your reason, to stop after all this time. Yeah. But you have a supportive environment to go to where yeah. your cousins understand you to be a woman. It's in another state. You know, I, I think that... He has that opportunity, opportunity to go and start again as a woman, but... Hmm. Especially when you're saying he's living in poverty. He can't yes. see a doctor about his yes. illness that he knows is going to kill him. He can't claim benefits that he is entitled to. Yeah. 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 And I think, that, like, at that point, he can only be doing that for his, like, personal... Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it comes back to what you said at the beginning about, like, people are so reluctant to let, like, the simplest answer be the way yeah. except sometimes. And I think at that point, the simplest answer does end up being that he was a man. Yeah. yeah. And, like, obviously a bunch of information from other sources and then this one line from him isn't a wealth of information yeah but i think we're sometimes just a little bit too reticent and in, in being like well i wouldn't want to speculate we can't say for sure we speculate all the time yeah <laughs> like historians and- are professional speculators <laughs> yeah and i think like yeah at that point it's not even just he is a man it's you know he's a man and that's more important to him than 
prolonging his life. Yeah, his health. It's more important to him than getting out of poverty. It's more Mm. important to him than like any of the other options he has. Yes. And so at that point, I don't think it's really fair to be like, oh, he did this for a career. You know, he did Mm. this to get a job. He did this because if he did this for money, well, now being a woman would get him the money. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. In January of 1889, little Billy is visiting with his father and he decides he's not going to listen to his father's protest that he doesn't want to see a doctor anymore. He's Mm -hmm. too sick. He's calling the paramedics. But by the time they get there, Billy had passed away. And this is the moment that Middlebrook's book starts with. And then a lot of the articles that were written about this at the time and since have started with in that they looked for a heartbeat and they unbuttoned his shirt. And then one of them turned to his son and said, son, did your father have a sex change? And Billy saw his father's naked chest for the first time, reeled in shock, and had to go outside. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, a media buzz began. Mm. The autopsy report stated that the body was that of a, quote, normal biological female. The coroner signed it and then called a local journalist and said, I have a story for you. Get a hold of this death certificate. What an awful coroner. Kitty contacted a funeral director, swore him to secrecy, and arranged for a cremation, trying to bury this as soon as possible. A coroner's not obliged to some level of confidentiality. Well, people are corrupt frequently. (laughs) That's true. She also called the editor of the newspaper that was planning to run a story and demanded that they respect the family's privacy. However, one of her older sons had already agreed to be interviewed for it, and this constituted family permission, and it was published. So the family is in demand by talk shows and so forth, um, and they're very clearly divided. Kitty has claimed, as, as we've talked a bit about, that she had never known, that she never had sex with Billy, and the older sons call her a fake, basically. I mean, what it sounds like, honestly, from her actions is that she was aware of this and was comfortable with it and wants to respect Billy's preferences on it. Potentially. Like, I mean, it could have been that she didn't and now she does. She yeah. doesn't want this implicating how people view her and she's trying to cover it up as well. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Or that, I mean, even or that she wasn't aware of it, she's become aware of it and she still wants to respect Billy's. Yeah. So it's just like, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. 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 The older sons sell the rights to the story to a film company. This film has never been made. That's probably for the best. Yeah, I was yeah. about to say. Yeah, that Fortunately. would and as a very unfortunate symbol of how the family is at the moment, his ashes are literally divided between the two parties, the two older sons and little Billy and Kitty, okay. uh, to do with what they will. His will leaves uh, a lot of his assets to little Billy. He gets his saxophones and other relics of his career. Mm-hmm. John and Scott get a dollar each. Ouch. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So the family by the end of Billy's life was not in a good Yes, yeah. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so that's about all I had to say about his life and what really just remains is the discussion. <laughs> I also, I guess, just wanted to talk a little bit more about Middlebrook and how she chose to write about this. So her biography very much plays into common tropes about trans people, chiefly among them this understanding of someone who passes this agenda that they were not assigned at birth as being deceptive and yeah, mm-hmm. yeah basically tricking everyone around them. There's this constant language about Billy being an actor and theatrical and putting on illusion and so forth. And this ends up in this kind of like bizarre speculations that say a lot more about Middlebrook than they do about Billy Tipton, I think, where she posits that, for example, the disguise itself was sexually exciting to Billy. How did she reach that point and how did she kind of marry that with her assertion that the motivation was professional? She doesn't really. (laughs) 
Did she just yeah. get to that point where oh the motivation was the was the music career and then when that didn't hold up go guess it must be erotic then yeah I mean so I guess she's kind of speculating about like so if Billy Tipton is having sex with these women with a dildo like what's in it for you mm. and so she, what she arrives at is that like well disguising yourself as a man must have been the turn on as opposed to like you can have a fulfilling sexual relationship that isn't about you having an orgasm necessarily yeah yeah so she you know goes on to make similar comments about him for example enjoying being quote a voyeur who has gained illicit access to the object of lust and things like that wait what what is he a voyeur of um so he's a voyeur of the women who he's having sex with so he's a voyeur of his own sex life yes (laughs) it's rooted in this like awful uh contemporary psychology regarding i don't know yeah. trans people as perverts basically it's bad uh, it's a bad time yeah it sounds like a bad time like if there's you and one other person in the bedroom <laughs> having sex nobody can be a voyeur <laughs> it's not how not when you have sex together and as i've said she never really thinks about the possibility that billy like just was a man and that this was yeah. a genuine expression of his own identity as opposed to an elaborate facade if some of these women genuinely didn't didn't know the whole situation here I feel, you know, you could make a case for the fact that Billy should maybe have told them, but I don't see how we got from there to this. Yeah. yeah. Like, like that's a complicated discussion that she doesn't really handle our, except with lines like that, which yeah. is handling them terribly and in a sledgehammer-like way. I think it's yeah. better not to handle it at all than to write that. But yeah, so she never really thinks about the possibility that, like, yeah, he's just a man. This is in 1998. To be clear, like there were trans activists who were prominent at the time and who she did reach out to. She credits several of them for speaking Uh to her in her acknowledgements. So I don't know what the hell she thinks she's trying to pull. It's interesting that she did speak to trans activists because obviously then she's considered the possibility that Mm -hmm. Billy was trans. Is that something she addresses in the book? There is one passage where she truly considers whether or not this whole time she has been writing a book about a trans man. And I'm going to just read you that whole thing in full. Looking at Billy Tipton in terms available in the late 20th century, we see someone who fits the profile of the female to male transgenderist or female gender blender. That is a person with a female body, but an indeterminate gender identity, a blend of traits that is not not simply a femininity in disguise and is not a lesbian identity. Billy's success in the strategy raises the question of what it felt like to be on the inside of this performance. Did Billy, we wonder, feel like a man or like an actor? And then she doesn't really explore that question. And there's a bunch of stuff you can say about that. A lot of that language uh, has never been appropriate. Some of it generally genuinely was used at the time. So the term transgenderist to us today sounds like someone clumsily trying Mm. to talk about trans people. But that was a term that was like around at the time. But like it is overall just a bit of a mess. But I want to focus on the fact is that she in this paragraph gets to what I think is the key question of her biography which is Billy's identity. As she phrases it, did he feel like a man or an actor and she decides that this paragraph at the end of her book is the best she's gonna do so she doesn't answer that question in any way she just stops with the question did he feel like a man or an actor she doesn't really as i've alluded to throughout this episode interact with it in any real depth no okay and also like she's asking this question but this comes at the end of a book in which she has been constructing this person as one of the most elaborate actors you could imagine. So I feel like she's kind of retroactively answered her own question. Mm, Yeah. I really feel like what happened here was that she started the book with a preconceived idea of how she understood Mm -hmm. Billy's identity, got to the end and was like, what if trans man? 
No, that would be way too much work to edit this and just type a paragraph on the end. Yeah. Her reading does result to some degree from the fact that we have like next to nothing from Billy's point of view. And she doesn't really think about his point of view all that much. So the primary sources that she has instead are people speaking about him. We've quoted them a bunch in this episode. And I've established that I don't think that they can really be trusted. Yeah. (laughs) At least not, you know, without a lot of thought. Um, But this is absolutely what Middlebrook is basing her understanding of Billy off of. There's this quite revealing passage where she essentially, like, imagines herself into the narrative. (laughs) And instead of, like, using that creative energy to imagine, if I were Billy, what would I be feeling or whatever, she imagines herself uh, as a young woman who met Billy and says, quote, would I have discovered Billy's secret or would Billy have discovered my secrets? And by requiring exciting kinds of privacy that gave fantasy the widest scope, elicited desire from me. So she doesn't imagine herself into Billy's perspective, but into the perspective of his wives. And I think that's the thing is that like, she just genuinely doesn't spend the time to think about the person at the core of the narrative. I mean, I think just the way she started that, like, would I have discovered his secret? That's just a summary of she's thinking of herself as an outside viewer trying to uncover his secret. Mm. You know, she's thinking of everyone interacting with Billy as a deceived party, essentially. Yes. And it's also, <laughs> like, vaguely and weirdly sexualized in ambiguous ways. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So I don't often read historical biographies where the writer pauses to imagine what would have happened if they'd entered into a sexual relationship <laughs> with the person they're writing the book about. <laughs> I also wanted to sort of briefly return to, like, so we've said that we treat the possibility of a historical figure being trans as, like, the last resort, the most far-fetched explanation that we'll entertain when there is nothing left. And I wanted to return a little bit to the conversation we had at the end of the second Pauline Murray episode. I'm sorry if you haven't listened to it. You don't need to for this. And which we reflected on, like, well, what will it take to make a historical figure, like, count as trans? The reason why I bring up Pauline Murray is to kind of, like, simplify both Billy Tipton and Pauline Murray down very yeah. Briefly. The Paul Amari expressed the desire to transition and expressed in writing that he understood himself to be a man, but did not transition. And so biographers of him are like, no, 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 not a trans, definitely a woman. And Billy Tipton transitioned. Yeah. But we have nothing of his own words really about mm. why. And so neither of them are understood as trans. And I just wanted us to reflect again on the, like, perfect storm of historical sources required to apparently have people count any historical figure as trans, and also that they're all going off of, like, medical stuff that hasn't existed for more than, like, a century. Yeah. Yep. So, to end this on a bit of a more pleasant note, Mm -hmm. um, a common theme of Middlebrook, as we have expounded upon at length, is that Billy is a deceptive liar lying to everyone through lies. (laughs) And that this must have been a huge deal for everyone in his life. This is terrible. And she clearly raised this issue in her interviews with the people who knew him, this kind of, like, do you feel deceived? Mm -hmm. Do you view him as a man kind of thing? And it's worth noting, for the most part, that they don't really seem to agree with Middlebrook or to fit into her narrative. His wives reaffirmed that they still understood him to be a good, loving man. And this is a common refrain amongst those who knew him. Betty, um, no, 
Betty's sister Loretta said, Our memories are of a loving, caring man. I guess you could say I had him on a pedestal then and nothing now can knock that pedestal down. She explicitly rejects in this piece of writing about him Mm -hmm. that she did that Billy was acting as a man and she asserts multiple times that Billy was a man. Musicians that he had played with did likewise. Kenny Richards, who played bass in the Billy Tipton trio, was asked if he thought that Billy was a man at the time and he simply replied, still do. It's also possible that some of the people that he knew throughout his music career did know or suspect that Billy wasn't a cisgender man and just chose to remain respectfully quiet. Acquaintances uh, that he had known in, say, like Oklahoma City sometimes turned up where he was playing and would say, oh, that's Billy Tipton. I know him. He used to be a girl and Mm. things like that. And one of the musicians he played with, Clarence Cagle, said, musicians I worked with in those days certainly wouldn't have said anything or done anything. They just would have said, that's Billy Tipton, that man playing the piano right there. Another musician who didn't know at the time said that it wouldn't have been decent to ask. And he said, I'll tell you why. Back then, there were not nearly the number of mean people we have today. This country is on a binge of ignorance and revels in it. Pick up truck mentality. The attitude then, with us and with everybody you talk to, probably would have been, what the hell difference does it make? He was a nice person, played well, what the hell difference does it make? That was, yeah, all quite wholesome, really. What did um, Middlebrook do with all this? <laughs> she just she just quotes a lot of stuff and then doesn't really do anything with it. Okay. But yeah. I wanted to end on that because we've had a lot of conversations over the course of this podcast about people, about, say, women who've had wives and had people kind of react and be like, I didn't know that, you know, it was possible for same-sex attracted people to just kind of, like, have a partner and be happy in the 40s and the 1800s and Mm. a thousand years ago and so forth and we haven't talked as much about trans people and so we haven't reflected on this as much but you know whether or not Billy identified as a trans man he was assigned female at birth and he lived as a man and he was successful and well liked he never lacked for company and he was universally respected after his death with that we've been Queer as Fact I'm Eli I'm Alice I'm Irene If you liked this episode, you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. You can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. If you want to listen to more of our episodes, you can find us on Podbean or on iTunes as Queer as Fact or anywhere else that you find your podcasts. We're nearly on Spotify, which we're very excited about. And if you do listen to us we would really appreciate if you left us a review particularly on itunes because it really helps us gain a wider audience and we're going to read you some of these reviews now so we haven't done this for a little while uh and in the intervening time i made a terrible discovery oh no so just a little like peek behind the curtain for our audience itunes isn't the most friendly thing to run a podcast through because it doesn't actually give you a lot of information like you would assume that it would send us our reviews it doesn't <laughs> we can't access our reviews we also through can't, itunes we can't see how many people subscribe no we get no information from itunes so thanks iTunes. please don't kick us off though we, we want to stay <laughs> um so basically what i have been relying on to get our reviews are independent podcast websites that like that collate iTunes reviews for you. So I've been using one of these and I've been reading reviews out and periodically being like, well, that's all the reviews guys. And I made a discovery that it doesn't collect all the reviews because I found a different one that showed us way more. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> so if you have reviewed us and you've heard us over the last few months, be like, well, that's all the reviews. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was the best I knew at the time. <laughs> I think... It mostly seems to leave out ones that aren't American, the site I was looking at. So we've just neglected all the non-American listeners. I'm sorry, guys. Yeah. 
but not exclusively. I don't know how it works. So, for example, way back in November of last year, <laughs> oh, someone no. from South Africa oh. uh, with the username The Future Machine gave us a rating, five stars, entitled Really Entertaining Podcast, and said, I really like this podcast. It's fun to listen to, and I've learned a lot from it. And we ignored them. <laughs> we hope you're still listening, Future Machine. I'm sorry. I hope you're still here. Yeah. Hello. Thank you for your review. So I'll also read you our newest review, <laughs> as well as our oldest one that we've <laughs> neglected. And then I'll like check which ones we haven't, and we'll work our way through these. And it'll take us many months okay good uh, so our most recent one is from someone in Canada which we can now know their username is CSRTER13 they gave us five stars and said love it super cool stuff I didn't know I wanted to know the content <laughs> is intriguing and the way it's presented is a really fun way to learn as a lesbian nerd this is prime content which made me happy because I feel like lesbian nerds are the demographic we are trying to reach yeah absolutely <laughs> good very yes. good other queer nerds also like oh yeah of course yeah, yeah. Another one we got recently is from Germany. Oh, cool. Their username is just the same Cyrillic character five times in a row, and I don't even know what it is. And they entitled it the best LGBT plus nonfiction podcast. Ooh. I really, really love Queer as Fact. The hosts are super eloquent and awesome <laughs> as heck. I feel like maybe uh, the eloquence kind of <laughs> undeserved, but I appreciate it. I think it comes in the editing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Once you okay. cut out every filler word you say, you're like, wow, I sound so intelligent. <laughs> The range of topics is really impressive, and I mean every way possible. Lengthwise, country-slash-continent-wise, topics ranging from debunking myths to the oldest lesbian vampire novel. <laughs> and I really appreciate that they do content warning in the beginning of each episode. Overall, one of my absolute favorites. Oh, Yeah, you. thank you so much. I also really just love it when people talk about specific things that yeah. they like. Because... Mm. We do yeah. use it to kind of like steer our content going forth. So thank you so much. It's really exciting that you're listening in Germany, if you're still listening. Uh, yes. People are listening in many, many different countries. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.